0: City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine, that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Isaac Thibodeau is preaching through Daniel chapter eleven, and the sermon title is "Providence in the Kingdom of Men." We hope you are blessed by the message today. Well, it is a pleasure to uh, be with you, church. I'm very excited about. This part of scripture, we're in a series on the book of Daniel. Um, if there's anyone new here, um, I'll introduce myself. My name is Isaac Thibodeau. I'm one of the pastors here. We've been going through the book of Daniel uh, for several months now, and we're coming close to the end. We only have a few more sermons in it. Uh, this week we'll be in Daniel chapter 11, and we'll cover the entire chapter today. There is a reason why we didn't read that passage uh, before the sermon. And I think if you take a look at Daniel 11 and you begin to read it, you'll see why. It's very long, and uh, it's a lot of prophecy and history, recounting and things of that nature, so um, it, it might be kind of hard to follow if we just read it all in one chunk. So given the nature of the passage, um, I will give us a, an outline at the beginning, just so you guys know where we're headed. Um, we're obviously not going to be covering every verse in detail. There will be some verses that we hone in on, but uh, this will be an overview in many ways. Um, I do ask that uh, that you be patient with it, because um, it is a very in-depth passage. Uh, in fact, out of all the sermons I've ever preached, this is the one by far that I've had to spend the most time preparing for. Uh, it is, uh, there's, a, there's a lot to it, as you'll see. Um, so, just be patient um, at the end, so just so you know the structure, we'll, we'll go over the entire passage um, for most of the sermon, and then the last chunk of the sermon, we'll be talking about some application, because there isn't a lot of application in the text itself, but there is some application we can draw from it as a whole, so we'll, we'll do that. Um, so just a couple things uh, to begin with, so you know where we're at in this book. So Daniel has um, multiple prophecies. Uh, there's very, very, uh, it's just prevalent throughout the whole book. And we've gone over many of them already. But Daniel 11 is possibly the most prophetic passage in the entire Bible. Uh, and what's, what's really cool about it is what I'm going to, to show today is that the entirety of Daniel 11 has been fulfilled in history and that it was in the future from Daniel's perspective. What's so interesting about this is this passage, um, this passage alone, for the most part, is one of the primary reasons why liberal scholars will say that the book of Daniel was written uh, later than it says it was. So Daniel lived around the in the Babylonian Empire, the beginning of the Persian Empire. So that's like near 500 BC or so, so 500 years or so before Christ. Uh, Liberal scholars will say it, it was closer to 100 to 200 years before Christ. And this passage is the primary reason. Because there are so many specific, detailed prophecies about kings and kingdoms and what they're gonna do that is verified in history outside of the Bible that they're like, there's no way that this could actually have been written beforehand. Because they start with the assumption that prophecy is impossible, which is not a good, that's not a very fair and balanced way to, to start things. You shouldn't start with your conclusion. You should look at the evidence first, and that's not what they're doing. They're looking, they're saying there's no way a miracle can happen. There's no way prophecy is possible. Therefore, this, hap- this must have been written after the fact. And that's not a very good reason, I don't think. I think that's a very poor reason to date the book of Daniel um, earlier or later than it really was written. Um, so I, I pray that this passage will be really encouraging to you. Um, it was to me. It's super cool. Um, there will be a lot of history. Um, so I will try to keep it interesting and to the point. Um, you will need to follow along as best you can. I'm sorry I don't have a lot of slides, um, but, uh, but I pray that the Lord will use his word. This is his word, and it is profitable for teaching and correction and righteousness. Um, so I'm going to trust that and that it won't return empty. So um, in this chapter as a whole, um, we will be discussing the kingdoms of Greece and Persia and possibly Rome. We're going to see what is possibly the most wicked villain in all of Israel's history. We're going to see the person who desecrated the the temple. But most of all, we're going to see God's providential hand guiding the course of history and setting the stage for the Messiah. That's what Daniel 11 really does. So it's a very vital part of the Bible, even though it's one that's not often visited. Because it does take us from Daniel to Christ. So, uh, without further ado, let's uh, go ahead and begin. So, I'll read the first couple verses of Daniel chapter 1. So, open your Bibles, Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Quote, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So here we see the beginning of this, we're, start, we're talking about the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire is the one that conquered Babylon, existing in Daniel's Lifetime. He started with Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, lived through a couple Babylonian kings, and then they were overtaken by Persia. We've already seen that in Daniel before. So now there's a prophecy that there will be three more kings after this, of which Daniel did not see. Daniel did not live to see these, these kings that he's about to… Um, he doesn't specifically mention, but we'll know from history in a second. I'll show you who they are. But, so keep in mind, this, these first couple verses… It's talking about Persia, and literally the entire rest of the chapter, it's Greece, maybe possibly Rome at the end, which we'll, we'll touch on that possibility. But um, there are three Persian kings that will arise. Cambyses, son of Cyrus, he reigned from 530 to 522. Smyrdas Magus, he reigned in 522, had a very short reign. And then the third king is Darius, son of Hystaspes, and he reigned from 521 to 486 then after that there's a significant king and we'll know him from from uh, the rest of the bible in a second here it says in verse two the latter half a fourth shall be richer than all of them and when he has become strong through his riches he shall stir up all against the kingdom of greece so this this king you've probably heard of him his name is xerxes how many of you have heard of king xerxes before in history yeah so pretty much all of us yeah this is also the same king and his son that are mentioned in the book of Esther. The same king. He goes by the name Ahasuerus. Same kingdom. <clears throat> and the reason he's met, so it's, what's important to know, he's, he's the one that really initiated the invasion of, from Persia to Greece. There were conflicts before, but he's the one that started the first campaign. And that's why he's mentioned here, because... What people misunderstand about this passage is it's clearly Xerxes being talked about, but there are other kings after Xerxes that existed. So this, this list isn't exhaustive. There is some sort of a gap, quote-unquote, between verses 2 and 3 when it starts to talk about Greece. Um, that's, it's a natural gap because the reason Xerxes is being brought up is not because he was the last Persian king, but because he's the most significant Persian king for this part of the story because he initiated the invasion of Greece from Persia. And it says he's going to stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And this is exactly what we know from history. Xerxes gathered people from his entire empire. Because remember, the Persian empire was massive, like the entire ancient world at the time, mostly other than the Far East. And he gathered so like thousands and thousands and thousands of troops, probably the largest army in the ancient world at that time. He gathered them all against the kingdom of Greece. And he ultimately lost. But they continued to have campaign after campaign. And then we see in verse 3 Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. So, right here, we now begin to see Greece come on the scene. And this is talking about no other than Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. How many have heard of Alexander the Great before? A lot more than Xerxes too, yes, yes, he he is known for being an incredibly um, brutal and fast acting king and emperor who conquered the ancient world in lightning speed. And he actually died at the age of 32 of an unknown disease. Many, many speculate that he had conquered so much that he just didn't know what else to do with his life. So he kind of, he, he was depressed and he died by some sort of sickness because of that. Um, we're not sure about that, obviously. He, he didn't live to tell us why. Um, but <laughs> nonetheless, uh, it, at the age of 32, by the age of 32, he had already conquered the ancient world. So that tells you how great this, this king was. So, remember, I I hope you guys have seen this so far. This is all future to Daniel. So, Daniel is prophesying this. So, so so far, these are things we're able to confirm in history and see, which is awesome. But then look at verse 4. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these." Now, if you know anything about history and anything about the history of Alexander the Great, you know that as soon as he died, his kingdom was divided into four parts. It was divided from the east, west, north, and south. The north was Syria. South was the Egypt area, which those will be important later. But they weren't divided to his descendants. It was actually his four generals that got those kingdoms. And they were immediately weakened because of this, because... They were all divided. They had different ideals, different desires. And as we'll see in the rest of this chapter, two of those kingdoms are honed in on the two strongest, the king of the north, Syria. So it's Greco-Syria. The king of the south, Greco-Egypt. Those are the ones that are in view, but they're all divided and they're at war with each other. And that's exactly what uh, verse 4 says. And that's exactly what we see in history. So now what we're going to see from verses 4 to 20 is the conflict between these kingdoms. Um, there's a lot to go over, lots of detailed prophecy. A lot of this from verses 4 to 20 I'm actually not going to get into because there's, I think the, the pinnacle of this passage is really after that. But I will just say that if you go back and read it, you'll see that there's lots of conflict between the north and the south, different kings at different times. This is over a period of several hundred years that is being prophesied between verses 4 and 20. And um, again, it's a lot to go over in a sermon, so I'm not going to get into that all that much, but feel free to read that on your own. But there's so many intricate, fulfilled prophecies in here. It's, It's awesome. But the main thing to keep in mind is that it's a divided kingdom. And the king of the north is Syria. The king of the south is Egypt, okay? So having that in the back of your mind, let's go to verse 20. Then shall arise in his place, so this is the previous king, one who shall send an extractor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So we begin to see here the prophecy of Israel's probably the worst villain in their entire history. His name is Antiochus the IV Epiphanes. Antiochus the IV Epiphanes. He was the most sick, evil king that Greece had probably ever known and that Israel had ever experienced. His, uh, we're going to look at him specifically because most of, I, I think the entire rest of this chapter is focused on talking about him. There are some uh, disputes on that, which I'll bring up once we get to that point. But I do believe the rest of this chapter is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And we're going to spend most of our time looking at him. We're going to look at his character. So we'll just look at some verses that give us an idea of what he was like. Then we'll look at what he did. And then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. <clears throat> so Antiochus Epiphanes. So let's look at his character. He was just, just by the name, just by the name, we can know a lot about him. So Antiochus was his inherited name. He's Antiochus IV. But Epiphanes is a title he gave himself. Epiphanes means manifest one or God manifest. So what he was saying about himself, that he titled himself, he is saying that he is a God manifest in the flesh. He was a God man. That's what he thought of himself. He was arrogant. He worshipped himself, as we'll see in this passage. He did not have any regard for human life other than his own. And you see in verse 21, we see immediately what we're supposed to think of him. In his place, so the previous king, shall arise a contemptible person. Contempt means someone not deserving of respect. Someone who's contemptible, someone who does not deserve res- respect. They're, um, they're arrogant. They're worthless. That's, that's who he is. And we get an idea of what the Jews thought about him, because Antiochus Epiphanes, his, his name, Epiphanes, this is, this is, if you miss everything else in the sermon, just get this, because this is, this is awesome. Um, the Jews had a, a nice little play on words to insult him. Instead of calling him Antiochus Epiphanes, they called him Antiochus Epigones, which means the madman. Which is very clever. And I'm one for puns. I love puns. So that's, that was pretty cool to find out. So, from here on out, we'll probably refer to him as the madman, as the Jews did. And we'll see how mad he really was. But you see, at the end of verse 21, he obtained the kingdom by flatteries. And we know this from history. He did not, he did not kill um, the runner-up. So, he had an older brother that should have assumed the throne. but he was actually deported to Rome for captivity uh, by, by the workings of Antiochus Epiphanes. He, he wanted to do that. So he, he obtained the throne without killing, without killing, which it says here. And then he obtained the kingdom by flatteries, by partnerships. He was flattering other people, making them promises. So we get an idea of his character there. He's very deceitful. In verse twenty-three we see that again. And from the time and from the time that the alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. So he's he's a deceitful person. Verse 27 says, And as for the two kings, which we'll explain that in a bit, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. So one of those kings is Antiochus, one of the other kings is from the south. Those two kings, their hearts are bent on doing evil. And probably most notably, verse 28, says, And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. The holy covenant. Antiochus is a man that hated the Jews. He hated Israel. He despised them. He did terrible things to them. In fact, he, uh, he, was, he was so awful the main, reason, the main reason the Jews hated him initially, but he, so he ended up persecuting them and doing some terrible things, but before he did that, from a cultural standpoint, the Jews hated him because he was trying to enforce Hellenistic or Greek culture on them. So, and as you know, the Jews were supposed to be a separate people and not have the cultures of the world. That was their calling. And Antiochus, um, he, he wanted to Hellenize the world. He wanted to spread... The Greek culture to every part of the world, and the Jews were the most stubborn in the entire empire. They would not give in. They wouldn't, they wouldn't add Greek gods to their pantheon of worship. They only worshipped the God of the Bible. Now many of them, many of the Jews, didn't worship the God of the Bible merely because um, that's what they thought was right. They did it almost out of spite, which we see a lot in our country, too, for, by way of application. We see a lot of people who hate the way our country's going, and they have this sort of sentimentalism about the way our country was in the past and how we were all God-fearing and things like that, when in reality, a lot of those people don't care about God. They just they think God is a convenient way to get the kind of country they want. I'm not saying that's all of us. Obviously, politics are important, so I'm not preaching against politics, but I am just saying be aware of that. Just because someone says God guns in country doesn't mean it's the God of the Bible, and it doesn't mean they really care about Him. Um, Although I do love my country and I do love guns. So (laughs) I will say that. But nonetheless, Uh, one significant thing that he did when it says he set his heart against the Holy Covenant. At this point in time in the text, he actually took the high priest Onias III, who is called the prince of the covenant in this passage. Um, Antiochus hated him and actually replaced him with another priest. So he came in. He did what he wasn't supposed to do. According to Jewish law, the priests are supposed to be ordained in a certain way. He said, I don't care. I'm removing him because I don't like him. I'm going to put someone in who will enforce Hellenistic culture. And that's what he did. So the Jews really hated him for that. But now where we really see this pick up is when we look at his actions. So we've seen his character, and now we're going to see the flow of his actions and how sick of a man he was. So, verse 21, he stole the throne from his brother by sending him in exile to Rome. We know that from history. He didn't kill him, like the passage says. He didn't didn't do it by way of violence. He had a very strong army that would destroy any in his path. That's what verse 22 tells us. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant, which is Onias, and that would be the Jews. He was known for plundering everywhere he went. In verse 24, it tells us that without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, which is the the whole empire, the province that he is, well, the empire that he has, which is the northern part of the empire. So mainly Syria and the area north of Israel. And he shall do what neither his fathers nor his um, father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoils, and goods. So even his fathers, the kings before, had the the dignity and respect for other peoples in his empire to not plunder their goods. But Antiochus Epiphanes, the madman, he was so greedy. He just wanted all the wealth he could get to store it up, and his greed knew no end. And then we see in verses 25 to 27, the first major piece that is really significant for our time. And that is his invasion of the southern kingdom of, of Egypt. Here, the remember, I do just want to point this out. These are Greek empires waging war against each other. So I'm saying Syria and Egypt, but these are, it's Greco-Syria and Greco-Egypt. So these are, these are Greeks waging war against each other. They still have the same culture. And Israel is caught in between them. Because if you think where Syria is north of Israel and where Egypt is, South of Israel, the only way by land that you could get from one place to another is to cross through Israel. So that put Israel in a very dangerous spot. So we see that in verses 25 to 27, he launches, Antiochus launches his first campaign against Ptolemies, who is the king of the south, and it was a very successful campaign. He, uh, he destroyed much of the, the southern army. He didn't quite get their capital, Alexandria, but he did. he did conquer most of the land. And then on his way back through, um, he had to cross through Palestine. He had to cross through um, Israel. And he suspected there would be an insurrection because of the Hellenization. And the Jews are like, okay, now is our chance. Antiochus is coming through. Let's kill him. So they suspected, he suspected there was an insurrection whether there was or not. And In response, he went into the Jewish temple and he plundered it. He stole all of the, the gold that was there and all the treasures that the Jews had had and he slaughtered 80,000 Jews. He slaughtered 80,000 Jews. But that's not the worst of it. The worst comes later on with his second campaign against Egypt. This time his campaign was not successful because not only did he have to fight um, the southern kingdom again, but the southern kingdom actually got help from Rome, which was the emerging empire at the time. It says that they got help from the ships of Kittim in verse Thirty for ships of, or uh, verse twenty nine, at the appointed time he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So basically, what's happening here, and we know this from history, again, not just the passage that Antiochus was so infuriated that the Romans prevented him from overtaking the southern kingdom, that on his way back to Syria, crossing through Israel, he took his anger out on the Jews. He took his anger out on the Jews. And this is where we see probably one of the most darkest times in Israel's history, except for matched by maybe the Roman-Jewish war in AD seventy. But nonetheless, this was a horrific time. We see that in verse, uh, start in verse 31 here. It says that forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. The abomination of desolation. How many of you guys have heard of that? If you've been listening to our series in Daniel, you've probably heard of it before. That's um, an interesting thing, we'll probably cover it later on um, at some other point, maybe in more detail down the road, but um, the abomination of desolation is this is what it's talking about here, this event that Antiochus IV Epiphanes did. Then Jesus picks it up at some point uh, during, during his ministry, and he references it as something in the future to them, the, distru- the same thing happened. But this time, it was the Romans that destroyed Jerusalem. And it's very possible that that prophecy will recapitulate again. As we see in the Bible, we see prophecies that, that are fulfilled, and then there's another way that they're fulfilled. And then it's very likely, I mean, I, I'm convinced that at some point towards the end um, of time before Christ returns, there will be a rebellion, the releasing of Satan, as it talks about in Revelation 20. And, and that might be another abomination of desolations of sorts. Um, but that's a whole other thing that we don't have time to talk about in detail, but I'd be happy to answer any questions you guys have. Any of the elders would. And I, and I will say, of course, um, anytime we begin to talk about end time stuff, as you've heard me mention, there are various views within Christianity on that, and that's okay, because we all agree that Jesus is coming back, that he is king um, now, and that, um, and we agree on all the essentials. So... It's okay to have that, and I think it's healthy to have those discussions. So, uh, but again, we're not—that's not the point of our time here. So let's let's really look in detail what actually happened in the Abomination of Desolations here at this time. So for three and a half years, for three and a half years until the end of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign, he unleashed a horrific persecution against the Jews for three and a half years. And this is a number that should sound familiar to you. It's a number that recurs in the Bible. So there's three and a half years of judgment by God from Antiochus Epiphanes because the Jews were a rebellious lot. As a whole, they were not obeying the God of their covenant. And we know from the law, if they were obeying God, they would have victory over their enemies. And the fact that they're not having victory over their enemies tells us that they were being disobedient and they were living in exile because of this. So God's judgment on them from Greece, and and that's three and a half years. And then we see the same thing in the Roman-Jewish War, three and a half years, 46 months. So this is the, it's a significant period of time in the Bible. And this was a horrific persecution. He messed with their worship. He removed animal sacrifices, prohibited male children from being circumcised, which was a part of the Abrahamic and Mosaic Covenant. And he prevented any other Jewish expression of worship, basically anything that wasn't Hellenistic, anything that, that wouldn't fly within Greek culture, he, he prevented them from doing. And this lasted for a long time. Again, three and a half years is the total of this conflict until Antiochus died. And worst of all, this is the worst part, and this is what the technical term, this is, this is why abomination of desolation is used. Worst of all, his forces... Went into the Jewish temple. They plundered it again after they had to replace the things that were in there from the first time he plundered it. And then he set up an altar to Zeus in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. He set up an altar to Zeus and sacrificed pigs, which you know that pigs are an unclean animal. That's what he did, along with murdering any Jews that would stand against him. That is a sick man. No wonder why they called him the madman. He was was sick in the head, just completely evil, completely evil. During this time, there were many Jews that apostatized from their belief in Yahweh, and they began following the Hellenistic culture, and they worshiped the false gods for the sake of avoiding persecution. This is a horrible time of apostasy, horrible time for the Jews. But then there's a glimmer of hope. Verse 32 says, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble and fall in flame, uh, by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble. So that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So, what what we're seeing here is what we know from history and other uh, writings in between the New Testament and the Old Testament, the uh, Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books, particularly First and Second Maccabees. If you've ever heard of those books, they recount that's this story of this time period between. Um, Uh, when when the Greeks took over and up until the time of Christ. And this is what's referred to as the Maccabean Revolt or the Maccabean Rebellion, which was a group of Jews that came in uh, to, uh, a group of Jews that got together and they revolted against the Greek Empire. And they won. They actually were successful for a very long period of time. Um, Up until the time of the Romans and the Romans squashed that. What's interesting is there was a, um, the line of kings that was established by the Maccabean revolt is actually the same line of kings that Herod came from. Herod the Great, Herod, uh, all, all those Herods, um, those, the same line of kings. So this is how that office came into power. But what's really important to know is that what was prophesied is this event and that there would be people who were faithful to God and to his law until the point of death, knowing that God would be glorified and would reward them eternally for their faithfulness. That's what we see. They, were, they rebelled against the, um, the evil and the atrocities that were happening. And that, and that should give us some sort of uh, application. I mean, uh, we're not called to violence as Christians but we are called to stand up against evil. The way we do that depends on the situation, um, but, but as a whole, we need to remember that when evil things are happening, Christians shouldn't just stand by and let them happen. We should be prayerful, of course, and seek to obey as Christ did, seek to live the way Christ did, but we need to stand up against evil like he did, too. <clears throat> Again, that's a whole other sermon for another time, but um, so the last, last thing I'll do here, I want to talk about this last chunk, and then I want to get into some application, because I applaud you guys for still being in this room after so much of this. I know it's a lot of history, and uh, again, this isn't a normal passage of Scripture to, to, to have to teach. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of history here and a lot of prophecy, um, but I do pray that, that God will use it to encourage you, but there will be some good application at the end, I promise, so. So verses 36 to 45, this is the last section, or really verse 36 to chapter 12, verse 3. This section is uh, debated amongst conservative Christians as to who it's talking about. So we look at verse 36, and it says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. And it goes on from there. So... In the immediate context, it's, it's a little tough to figure out who this is talking about because there's, there's three primary views um, about this, and I'll share those with you, and we'll briefly touch on them and then get to the application. So, the first view is that this king that begins to be talked about in verse 36 is still Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes. That is the view that I take, though, with an open hand. I do take that view, and I'll give some reasons why. I do believe it's still talking about Antiochus. Um, the other, there's another view that says this king being referred to is a Roman emperor possibly Julius Caesar and a lot of what Julius did um, does come in line uh, with most of this so that's also possible and another view um, which, is, which is also popular is that this figure being talked about in verse 36 is a future to us antichrist type figure or beast figure and those three views are held within Christianity, again, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, I believe there is a right answer, and I believe we should try to figure that out. And I'm going to give some reasons why I think the way I do. But if you come away with a different conclusion, that's okay. We still agree on the gospel. We still agree on who the Lord is. Um, and if you want to talk about this over coffee, I would love to do that. So, But those are the three views, Antiochus a Roman emperor, emperor possibly Julius Caesar, or a future antichrist or beast figure. So I'm going to give some reasons why I think that it is Antiochus Epiphanes and some reasons why I don't think it could it's the Romans or a future antichrist. Um, but again, open-handed here, so I will just admit that on the front end. I want to be honest, I don't I don't think everything in scripture is as black and white as other things in scripture are. And I think that's by design. <clears throat> so Um, After much study, I find that options one, option one is the most plausible, maybe option two, Um, but I heavily lean towards option one, and the reason is it seems to me, um, as well as many other Christian scholars and commentators, that what we see in verses um, 36 to 12, 3 is a recapitulation or restatement of verses 21 to 35, which is something common in Jewish literature. It's a, a recapitulation or, or re saying of the same thing to emphasize different, different parts. So it's still, it's almost like verses 21 and uh, 35 are in the left column, and verses 36 to 12.3 are in the right column. And there's parallels because they're the same figure. And that, that's my understanding of it. Um, and, a- and another reason why I think. Uh, that is the case is because um, oh, hang on where's my thing sorry I, this is also the longest notes I've ever brought uh, yeah that's the, that's the old one yeah let's see there we go okay sorry guys <laughs> um, so I, I think that's, the, yeah, the other reason why I think it's natural to take it that way is because if you look, so starting with verse 36, it's not clear, okay? The king shall do as he wills. It's not clear because it just says the king. It doesn't reference north or south. But then immediately in verse 40, it says, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him. So we begin to then talk about the king of the north and south, which we just saw from this chapter. It's Syria and Greece, uh, Syria and Egypt. Um, so, I think just contextually, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to, uh, to assert that it's someone else in mind. It might be a different king afterwards, but I don't think anyone, would, anyone who knows Greek history would say that it's anyone other than Antiochus Epiphanes if you're going to assume it was a Greek king. I know that's a lot, so, <laughs> amongst other things, it's a lot of details there. but. Um, I don't think it's Roman for the same reason. I don't think that really lines up with the fact that it's talking about King of the North and King of the South because the Romans came from the West. Um, so, now the reasons why I don't think this refers to a future Antichrist figure the time of the end, does, when it says the time of the end in verse 40, I don't think that that means we have to think it's the time of the end of human history because there's lots of ends of things in the Bible. Lots of ends of things. Um, I think it's talking about the end of this prophecy, the end of this prophesied time, which was the end of the persecution of the Jews by Antiochus Epiphanes IV, which is exactly why in verse 35 it says, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time, so that they will be purified during this time of persecution until it's done. That's the way I read it. I I think that makes sense to me. The other thing, this this should be, this should be significant to us. So, if this is a future Antichrist figure, then there is there is a two thousand one hundred year gap between verses thirty five and thirty six. A two thousand one hundred year gap, at least, between verse thirty five and thirty six, and that that just doesn't seem it doesn't seem fair to take the text that way to me. It doesn't it doesn't seem that way for multiple reasons. Number one, the whole context of Daniel is to prepare the Jewish people for the Messiah and his kingdom. That's what all of these things are pointing to. So I don't think it would be very natural for us to then go from verse 35, say there's a 2,100-year gap, and then verse 36. And I I will just make kind of a... uh, This is meant to be partially serious, partially comedic. But many conservative Christians have a problem with a gap theory between Genesis 1, verse 1, and verse 2 when it talks to, you know, with the creation-evolution debate. Okay, many conservative Christians, as I do, I have a problem with that theory. But many of those same Christians don't have a problem with gap theories in Old Testament prophecies in order to give them some future-to-us fulfillment. And again, that's, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I I just think it's, I don't know that it's always fair to do that in the text, to assert, because because what we're doing is we're bringing our preconceived notion and our system to the text and telling the text what it has to say. I think, rather than just going to the text and saying, okay, what, what does it say, what's the context, what's the history, um, not to say, again, I'm not, with this argument, I'm not even saying there isn't going to be a future antichrist figure. I'm just saying this text isn't talking about that. That's, that's all I'm saying. Um, whether there's a future figure or not, which I do think there is of some sort, um, that's not the point. The point is that this... This is just not what it's talking about. So you can use other passages to talk about the future Antichrist, but just not this one. Is that fair? Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I want to just compare this to Jesus, and then we'll, we'll go into the rest of the application, and then we'll be done. So most of the heavy stuff is out of the way. So thank you for staying through this long. So regardless of your view on this passage, of who this is talking about, we know at least that first part is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. And I want us to just compare him to Jesus for a second. So Antiochus IV gave himself the title God Manifest. He gave himself that title. While Jesus did not exalt himself, instead God the Father gave him the name that is above every name. So Antiochus has to exalt himself. Christ humbles himself and is exalted because of that. And then in the name, I mean, man, if this isn't a clear distinction, I don't know what is, who is the true God-man? It's not Antiochus Epiphanes, it's Jesus. Jesus is the true God-man. He is the true Epiphanes. He really is. He's the true manifest one. He really is. And Jesus does not conquer with violence, but with a holy love, with joy and peace from the gospel. Because he's so powerful he doesn't have to use violence to persuade people to do what he wants he's so powerful he can change people's hearts by the mere sight of his glory which is makes him a king that is so worth worshipping so lastly um, I don't even know if I talked about the title but the title of the the sermon was providence in the kingdoms of men so now we're going to talk about the providence part so what is so cool is, let's just look at this passage as a whole and where it fits in history. We see that this period of time, God was setting things up for Christ to come. He's setting the stage for Christ. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. When the fullness of time had come, when it was the right time, when it was the perfect time, God the Father sent the Son. And we know that because, just, so just think about this the, this, the Greek empire, because of its spreading so widely and Hellenizing everything, so causing Greek culture and language to go everywhere, most, if not all, of the ancient world spoke Greek, at least as a second language. So that by the time of Christ, Christianity and the writings... So the Old Testament translated into Greek and then the New Testament, which was originally written in Greek, could spread far and wide throughout the entire empire without a language barrier. There's no other time in human history where this would have been possible. No other time in human history where the entire, almost the entire ancient world spoke one language, at least as a second language. That was the perfect time for the gospel to the nations to come forth, the perfect time and then, because of the Roman Empire, access to other countries was very easy, especially to Roman citizens like Paul, and it was very safe because the Roman Empire, because of – in fact, the ancient world, most of the countries that were overtaken by Rome actually loved Rome because they brought peace. They brought peace to, uh, to, to the empire. And that enabled, um, like pirates, it was less likely that there would be pirates. It was less likely there would be raiders on the roads. Um, There's just a lot less crime because of the power of the Roman Empire. And this allowed for the spreading of the gospel from Christians, especially people like Paul, who was a Roman citizen, allowed for safe travel. Which again, it's just like, it's awesome. And, And there were roads to pretty much every country because the Romans had civilized so much of it. Uh, even into uh, places in Western Europe, which at that time were pretty barbaric and tribal still, you had access to those things because of Rome. So God just set the stage perfectly for the good news of Jesus to go to the nations. And I hope you see just how awesome that is. God's providence just, it's absolutely incredible. And then finally, the passage that my wife read um, from Isaiah, I want to read it again and we'll, and we'll calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my council from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it." All of human history is directed by God. All of it. He wrote the story. He wrote it. It's his story. He's the author. So every event, every war, every atrocity, every good thing, it all happens as a part of his grand plan to eventually redeem the world in Jesus. All of it. God does not waste anything. The worst thing that has ever happened to you in your life, it's not wasted. A death of a loved one, a disease, a disability, losing a job, losing your home, whatever it is, God's not going to waste it. It's all, every little piece is part of his plan to work all of it together for the good of his people and for his own glory. He doesn't waste any of it. So what I will say to just apply this, and I think a lot of us need to hear this, is when it comes to our own mistakes, because it, it, it's, one, it's one thing to recognize things we can't control as God using for his glory, like a, disa- a natural disaster or a death or something. It's another thing to recognize that God does that with our personal mistakes too. So the times that you have screwed up the most in your life, God's not going to waste that either. So as a Christian, do not wallow in the guilt of the past. Lay it on the crucified and risen Jesus. Lay it on Christ. Let it be buried with him and walk in in the newness of life, the resurrected life that you have if you're a Christian, if you believe in him. And trust that even your worst mistakes are part of God's plan. And anything that happens in the future, I know the future is uncertain in our country and many parts of the world with all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Just know that all of it is a part of God's plan. All of it. And he's not going to waste any of it. And remember that he declares the end from the beginning and he's the one worth trusting. He's the one we should trust. Let me pray for us. God, um, thank you so much. For your word and for these parts that are hard to choose sometimes there's so much there and I thank you for a congregation that uh, is willing to listen to this we know that your word is powerful and every part of it is good and profitable in some way shape or form may this part of scripture encourage our faith to know that you're in complete control of history there's nothing outside of your control all the things that happen are part of your plan and they happen at the appointed times in such a way that you're not responsible for the evil that happens. We are the ones responsible for the evil, but you take our evil intentions and use them for good intentions, for your good intentions. And I pray that we would just see how glorious our Christ is, our King Jesus, compared to any other king in human history. Who's, others are just full of themselves and they want to use, use us for their own gain, but, but Jesus is The humble king that came and laid his life down for his people. And as we we go through the rest of this day, Lord, as we take the supper together, may our hearts just be humbled and awed at, at Christ, who is the glorious Savior of the world and the King of all. And I pray you would do this in our hearts in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms, or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.